It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It could be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is... Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. Welcome to the next episode of Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. I am one of your regular hosts, Blaine Dowler. And I am the other one of your regular hosts, John Wilson. And it's just the two of us today, Blaine. It is the two of us going through the first proper episode of the series after they got the green light to go ahead. For those who are just picking up now, if this is the first episode you're listening to, we are going to be going through the original Babylon 5. We are covering every episode roughly 30 years after the original broadcast date with three known exceptions, the gathering that we did last week, and then we're going to cover the Lost Tales and Legend of the Rangers a little bit faster after covering Crusade. Because we're not going to let, you know, those episodes dangle out for years and years. And yeah, so like the the show has gone into regular production and our our podcast has gone into its full format with this episode since last week was kind of a not exactly 30 years later. Yes, and also it was a crossover with Paul Spataro of Is It Jaws? Right. So again, thanks, Paul, for agreeing to do that. Thank you, Paul. Hope you're listening. All right. So this time we are looking at Midnight on the Firing Line. This was the third episode produced in the main series. Uh, it was written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Richard Compton. It originally aired January 26, 1994, and it was always intended to be the first episode that we see in the regular weekly format. Okay, so it was produced out of order for convenience of production, not because it got rearranged. Exactly. Gotcha. So uh, one of the first shows that Straczynski worked on was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And that was produced by Phil Nation. One of the lessons he learned with that show and Phil Nation's stock is that pilot tends to be weak as you're putting things together but it's the pilot that you use to sell shows to the network. So write the pilot, but produce episodes two and three and four first, and then come back and produce the pilot so that you have a stronger product for sales. That is clever. I applaud it. It is. And Straczynski also, because the show was so planned and he knew that there was going to be time, especially for the visual effects, uh, the visual effects that we see here and beyond were actually produced with 16 Commodore Amigas with video toasters that were slaved together. So they were using home computers with a video add-on to produce the visual effects for the show. That's <laughs> that's pretty great to just like slave all the processors together and all the video processors together. That's that's funny. That's the kind of thing you read about them doing in like, you know, movies or sci-fi books or something. Let's just join all the computers together. But yeah, that's great. Yep. So doing that, he planning out the season, he would know which ones are going to need a lot of effects, which ones are not going to need much. So they would very regularly 
film episodes out of the intended broadcast order specifically to give the visual effects team the time to do it. So you don't have issues like, you know, what is common in Star Trek as a comparison. You will see what they call the bottle episodes, a couple of core cast members on a standing set coming up before the finale to save budget, spread out the money. Sometimes that works well. A duet near the end of the first season of Deep Space Nine is one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever. And that started as a way to say, hey, we need to do it cheap so we can have a big finale. Yeah. Yeah. Here they film things much out of order. So I do plan to mention the production sequence as we do them all. Uh, For example, the season one finale, the 22nd episode aired, was the 12th episode produced. Interesting. I remember whenever the new Doctor Who series premiered back in 2005, I was really following every single tidbit I could get my hands on. And the order of production blocks I found kind of fascinating with that, too. So, like, a small example is the first episode, Rose, and the fourth and fifth episode, Two-Parter, with Aliens of Leonard World War III. Those all take place on Earth in the modern day, and they were produced as a single block. And then two and three were produced later. So, you know, just for the convenience of all the same sets and the same actors and the same, you know, overlap of settings, do all that together. It just makes things easier when you're producing TV. It does. And uh, the BBC is more prone to that because they typically have shorter seasons. American television is starting to get into that as they're going to the shorter cable seasons. But in the 80s and 90s, generally speaking, episodes aired in the order they were produced. Mm -hmm. There is, I think... There's one known exception here that we'll talk about when we get to it, where the network said, no, this is very strong. We want to air this before these, the sweeps period ends, so let's move this up. But I'll, I'll, we'll get into that when it actually comes. All right. So Minute on the Firing Line, we have, I think, an A and a B plot on the station plus a C plot on Earth. That feels more like background. So the A plot which is the one established in the pre-credits teaser, there's an attack on a Centauri colony, Ragesh 3. And the colonists recognize who's attacking them. We see it from their perspective, so they are not expecting these ships to show up. They're coming out of nowhere. They're under heavy assault. And they're saying, tell Centauri Prime we're under attack. Tell them it's the... And then they get wiped out. So when word makes it to the Centauri, particularly Londo and his new assistant Veer on Babylon 5, they have no idea who's behind it. They eventually reveal that it is the Narn. So that's Shikar's race. But as they are going through the investigation, there's a broadcast from a man who's actually running the Ragesh Three colony, who is also Londo Malari's nephew, Karn Malari. And the claim in the broadcast is that there was unrest. They did not get the support from Centauri Prime. So the Ragesh Three colonists requested help from the Narn, and the firefighting was only from dissidents who didn't want the Narn support. So there's some issues here. The Centauri Republic has said we can't get there soon enough to help them anyway, so we're not going to support it. And Sinclair has been ordered not to get involved and not to do a, get into another war. The resolution of that actually ties into the B-plot, and the reasons behind that tie into the C-plot. So the B-plot is primarily Garibaldi and new executive officer, that is Susan Ivanova. She has taken over from Laurel Takashima, whose fate is unrevealed here. She was there in the gathering. I believe in a future episode we will find out that she was reassigned to a mission on the border of known space. 
And Ivanova is only six months in. She's still getting to know the station. So she and Garibaldi are focused on some raiders that are coming in. And they are hitting supply chains with insider information that they shouldn't have. So Garibaldi figures out, oh, yes, this particular supply line has basically had their computers hacked. And that's how they got the information. There is one viable target left. It's the last one known from that hack. So they need to protect it. And then since Sinclair has been ordered to stay out of it, when he knows this attack, he tells Ivanova, okay, go to this council meeting and vote. The last you heard, Earth was voting for sanctions. There's plenty of other instructions, but unfortunately I was not able to find you before I left to lead the Starfires, or the, the Starfuries, to protect this cruiser. Sneaky commander. From the raiders. Yes. So Commander Sinclair takes over from Garibaldi. He leads Delta Flight. And when they hit the command and control ship, they discover that it's actually Narns providing the heavy weapons that the Raiders have never had access before. And they obtain data crystals with Narn transmissions that confirm Londo was right, that the Narns were forcing Karn Malari to make his statement at the point of a gun, and it was all fabrication, and the Narns are the aggressors. And Sinclair basically gives Jakar a choice, pull out, or I am revealing these lies in council. So Shakar gets his people to pull off of Narn. The point, or pull off of Ragish 3, sorry. And the point to that was basically disputes. It was owned by the Narn until the Centauri takeover 100 years ago. The C-plot back on Earth is that there's an election coming, and it takes place. We get the results during this episode. The key there is that the president, Santiago, he wins the election based on a platform of cutting the budgets, strengthening ties with the Mars colony, and reducing the non-Earth influences on Earth culture. Mm. So that is a sentiment that has growing support back on Earth. And one other subplot is that the telepath that we saw before, that Lita Alexander, she is not present. We later learn that she's been reassigned as well. and. We have a new telepath that is on the station, played by Andrea Thompson, but for some reason I'm blanking on the character's name. Uh, it's Talia Winters. Right. Thank you. So Talia is trying to check in with her, or with Ivanova, the second in command, as is required. And Ivanova stonewalling her, we eventually learn that the Psycor has really all active telepaths to protect the privacy of the citizens. So telepaths who are not born and raised by the Psycor, because telepathy is genetic, have three options. They can join the Psycor as adults, they can go to prison, or they can take inhibiting drugs. Ivanova's mother was a telepath. They found out about her on her 35th birthday. She did not want to leave her family, either to go to prison or the Psycor, so she took the drugs, which had some horrible side effects. And after 10 years of it, she took her own life. So this is why Ivanova was so cold to tell you Winters. It wasn't personal. It's just the Psycor in general does not make her a happy person. Right. Not personal and yet also not disconnected from Talia. Like Ivanova doesn't expect that she and Talia are ever going to get along. Which, you know, remains to be seen whether that happens or not, because I haven't seen what happens. Yeah, so at this point, she's really saying, this is the way I am going to feel about anyone who wears that badge you're wearing. Mm -hmm. 
not in those terms, but that is the definite impression we get. All right. So this was definitely a, a strong lead for the season, in my opinion. I think it plays as a stronger episode than The Gathering. Not that we necessarily need to do compare and all that, but um, I don't, obviously, obviously, it doesn't do the pilot job that The Gathering did. So I don't know that this would have been like a good first episode of the entire show. But just sitting and watching it, you know, for for my enjoyment factor, I, I liked this one a lot. But we get new characters, we get new actors, we get new faces for old characters because we have visual redesigns. So where do you want to start with all this? Yeah, why don't we start with with the, the overall strengths of the episode and the weaknesses? So what what points were the ones that that grabbed you the most? I think that I think that the storylines and plots were specifically tied to specific characters in ways I was able to grasp better on a first viewing. A lot of the nuances of the story to the gathering, I didn't really follow the first time through. And I think the acting performances were just overall stronger. Some of the things I didn't really love about O'Hare's performance as Sinclair in the first episode, in the pilot episode, I should say, I thought he was a better performer here. Uh, He has a more commanding presence and yet balances that with humanity in ways that aren't, you know, necessarily cheesy at times. And like you said in the last episode, some of those dislikes might have been the less preferred takes because the preferred takes were damaged. So, you know, with with those caveats in place, the enjoyment factor is still what it is. I do really like our new Exo Ivanova. I realize that she is playing a very similar personality to Takashima. Uh, they wanted a no-nonsense woman in, in command. And, and I, don't know, I don't know if I can label what it is about her performance that I really like. If she's you know, taller and has a larger physical presence. If it's her face acting and her sort of sardonic responses to things. If Takashima has a certain softness to her, maybe, that... Uh, Ivanova doesn't have. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Those are just things I'm trying to guess it maybe. But I do really like Ivanova's presence. And although I was sad to lose Takashima, I found myself quickly liking Ivanova. Yeah, I would agree. There are still some moments when the performances are not as strong as this cast will produce down the road, but that's not uncommon on any show mm-hmm. at this point in production. When we talk about how it wasn't the first one produced, it was the third after the the Gathering. There was a year between The Gathering and this, at least in terms of broadcast. So, you know, there was time to sort of refine themselves, but also time to fine tune and refine once they knew what was coming. And also it's worth pointing out, like you said last week, it was also a year in continuity. The events of The Gathering, the coming together of the ambassadors on the station the, and the sort of the cutting the ribbon, if you will, of Babylon 5, that's a year in the past now. We've been doing this council for a year. We've had the League of Non-Aligned Worlds in support for however long it took to get them together. This is this is a this is a, a machine in motion now. Yeah, this is our first time as viewers to see Ivanova, but she's been on the station six months. Right. So yes, they there is that definite time. This was my first proper introduction to the series, because as we talked about previously, I was really getting into it on DVD and the gathering came much, much later. 
Oh yeah, because they though they packaged the gathering with the films box, and so you didn't really realize it was supposed to be there. Yeah, and they did have a a, a double thing as well that I recall now. The um, in the beginning and the gathering were on a, a standalone DVD that has its own whole separate batch of worms, though, because you don't want to watch in the beginning at this point. <laughs> uh, no, no, it yeah, it, it's it's spoilery. Um, yeah, so I did see the gathering. I think now I I do recall that I had that before we got to the season six set, but it was still after season one. I just no longer own that DVD, so I forgot I had passed it on to somebody else who was interested after I bought the complete movies box set because I had all the content in another box. So yeah, I I did find this worked well enough as a pilot. We understand very quickly the connections or the relationship between the Narn and the Centauri. Mm-hmm. We get that Kosh seems to be deliberately mysterious by staying behind the screen, but then quickly getting into the encounter suit. Yeah, that was an interesting bit. Of course, they're doing Tinkerbell production there. Like the, the stage play of Peter Pan, Tinkerbell is just a flashlight on the wall. She's, you know, shaped like a pixie. And then, you know, Kosh is just a light behind a thing. Sinclair turns his back and you see the light rush by. And then suddenly Kosh's suit is fully inhabited where it was just sitting on a rack before. So that was a bit of interesting, not exactly sure what happened there, but there's something oddly non-corporeal about Kosh. And I, I'm smiling here to hear you compare it to the stage production of Tinkerbell because JMS wanted to make sure that every dollar was spent and that the scents were versatile and looked modular and consistent with a lot of redressing. So when it came to the production team, they went out of their way to hire people with theatrical experience. That's what they wanted, is that stage play mentality, building their sets. Uh, there's a very notable example coming up in a future episode, the and the sky full of stars. But yes, that is a big part of the production side, is having the versatility of stage play in their sets. So really, of the ambassadors, we know less about Kosh than we did last time, but we still get, I think, enough of a sense in Stellen that we don't know very much about Aside from the fact that when Garibaldi is trying to share his second favorite thing in the universe, it is Delenn who takes the chance and spends the time with him watching some Looney Tunes cartoons, particularly Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. And they really did get a lot of mileage out of that second favorite thing in the universe line, which I thought was a pretty, a pretty racy pickup line in the, in the lift with Talia. Not to be confused with Talia al Ghul unless maybe she's the same person later in life. But um, but yeah, favorite thing in the universe? Well, my second favorite thing in the universe, and it turns out to be cartoons, which I love. But yeah, Delenn was a bit of a cipher in this. We don't really get to see her that much. She has an entirely new look, and I thought it was a different actress. I didn't even realize it was the same character the first time I watched through these, because she looks that different. Yeah, at this point, they had given up on the original concept of having Delenn present as male mm-hmm. for the first portion of the series. So they said, okay, if we're not trying to mask the gender of our performer, then let's let's give her makeup that will be several hours shorter to get in and out of. Yeah, I think she does partly on her request, too, that like she did not want to go through all of that every day. Yeah, so the, so the the broadening shoulders element of the costume is gone. 
you can see the actress, her face, which you couldn't really see before, is all covered in prosthetics. Basically, the only thing they're doing that's unusual is giving her a bald cap or a prosthetic that looks like a bald cap. It's not, it's not a skin cap, but it's a prosthetic to make her look bald. Yes, because the Minbari don't have hair. She's got the bone ridge wrapped around her head. Right. And uh, it's also notable that, yes, Veer was introduced now. So our Centauri ambassador now has staff. I love Veer. I love him a lot. He is so stressy and anxious and just trying to do a good job with a very temperamental ambassador. <laughs> and he doesn't always know the best thing to do because Alondo is just such a person. But yeah, I, I really like Veer. Yeah, Veer is good. Stephen First did a wonderful job with him. Rest in peace, Stephen First. That's going to be coming up. Babylon 5 has had some truly horrible luck with the cast. A significant portion of this cast are no longer with us, including Michael Hoa Hare, who plays Jeffrey Sinclair, Mira Furlan, we lost earlier this year, playing Delenn, and we lost Stephen First, who, who plays Veer. I, I'm starting to, to wonder. There's been so many, I'm starting to lose track of who is and is not with us, but I believe there's even more. And it has been 30 years. So, I not not to be callous, but it's not unexpected. That's true, although some... Are, are younger than others. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jerry Doyle, who plays Garibaldi, passed away at age 60 mm. in 2016. And there's other regular cast members who haven't even joined the cast yet that are no longer with us. Andreas Katsoulis, who plays Jakar, is no longer with us. So talking about Jakar, he also had a facelift. Not nearly as extensive as Delenn's, but it looks to be a simpler setup that conveys a very similar effect to the original look. You can see more of his facial expressions. You can see more of his you know, musculature on his face. And his eyes stand out better with the red contacts yeah when jms describes that they were trying to reduce how square the chin was and a part of the redesign was because they found with the other makeup they were limited to the angles they could use for close-up because at certain angles the close-ups the makeup would look like makeup mm. so they needed to eliminate that i do think that whatever they're doing to include his neck in the look reduces his head movement because there are times where he Looks like he would be turning his head, but he can't fully turn his head, so he has to like look more with his eyes or turn his shoulders. Yeah, it's it's like the Christian Bale Batman from Batman Begins, where, or even Michael Keaton Batman, where they have that cowl that restricts their motion. Mm -hmm. So yes, they're, the upper torso turns with them. And you just, with that neck, I'm sure if he were to actually turn it, it would it would fold like rubber and not like skin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's elements of that. Now, the fact that he's an alien and all in our have, that have similar makeup will have similar mobility issues, they can write it off as, no, that's their physiology. They aren't as mobile in that respect. But yeah, it does look odd to us. So that would be something that it wouldn't be a choice made because the science says that's realistic. It would be a choice that they said, okay, this is the makeup limitation. So let's come up with science to explain it. Mm -hmm. So what elements would you like to have seen strengthened? Um, 
I think the opening shots with the Centaurians and Ragesh 3, uh, you're coming into a show cold or after a year, and they just come off as random aliens with space hair. Or actually, they come off as humans with random alien space hair. It's not the greatest look, and it's the opening scene of the episode. I think that is just, like, maybe a little visually off-putting to people who are giving this show a try. Like, oh, really? Okay. Interestingly, they actually address the physical similarities between humans and Centaurians in this episode. So that's, you know, a nice addition to the lore. That conversation is very early in Act 1, but you're also talking about the pre-credits teaser, so. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What are some things that you would have boned up a bit? You see, part of it is, it, it, it's hard for me to really say what's weak, because there are things that didn't really grab me the first time through. But watching it now the second time, having seen the whole run, the pieces that felt like, oh, we could have tightened that, we could have lost that line of dialogue, we could have moved quickly, I now realize that line of dialogue will be important a certain number of episodes down the road. <laughs> So it belongs there, but some of it, what it's lacking is the way the foreshadowing will become on this show, where Straczynski found if you're going to be doing this and telling people there's a five-year plan, they're going to be trying to put the pieces together. So he needs to find a way and will eventually find that when you're foreshadowing, if you don't want people to realize you're foreshadowing, that foreshadowing also has to have a purpose today. So right. you have a meaning that's assigned to that, and you're not looking for more. I didn't notice any of those moments in this episode. When we get to uh, forming the dream, we should talk about those, because um, I'm curious which, what you're referring to there. I actually felt that this episode was a bit light on foreshadowing elements. Everything seemed to play into the plots at hand, I was wondering how important the election elements were going to be, but based on the way you described them in your, in your synopsis, and when you highlighted his platform, those definitely sound like lore and world-building elements that are going to come back. Yes. So for the listeners, giving form to the dream is the name of a segment we're going to include, which is a summary of the tidbits that really are foreshadowing. And when we get there, it's not going to be a spoilery discussion. It's just going to be sticking pins in what we might not want to forget for later. Yes. So, yeah, that election platform is absolutely one of them. So President Santiago's platform is going to come back. And those elements where people are concerned about other cultures impacting Earth culture, that is an element. It's interesting that the, um, the conservative, xenophobic, older male wins out over the progressive younger woman. So some things aren't going to change as we move forward in the future. No, and keep in mind that before JMS really broke into TV, he was a journalist. That was some of his first professional writing work, at least his regular writing work. He had published short stories and he was a playwright. But yeah, it was journalism was a big part of his first part. So he's done a lot of research and seen a lot of things. So when People look at elements of this, they're going, oh, was he referring to this part of history? And the answer is, no, that's a pattern that repeats. So yes, it applies to that event and to this event and to this event and to this event. And he was not referring to any of them specifically. He just realizes that's the way that the world seems to work. Mm -hmm. 
So should we jump ahead to the rest of giving form to the dream? I had a few other random notes on the episode that I had written down before we start doing our segments at, uh, at the end. So one of the things I liked about Talia's replacement of Lita is that, and also Ivanova and Takashima, although Ivanova and Takashima seem to have similar mentalities, I did feel they were different enough of characters and Talia and Lita even more so. I feel like I, I like that they're creating new characters not just recasting characters. And they'll have the option, which I think comes to pass in one case, of using those characters more later on if they want to revive that character's original purpose or whatever. Random note, just because I mentioned it last time, and it's the linguist in me that's going to pay attention to these things. Like with Takashima, Ivanova's pronunciation has been shifted away from its original language. So... Ivanova, if she were pronouncing it more according to Russian pronunciation rules, would be Ivanova, and Takashima would be Takashima. But, you know, that's fine. Pronunciations get changed over time. I really, really liked the line, ignore the propaganda, focus on what you see. Like, that is some great humanist advice right there. Yes, the advice Sinclair's father gave him Mm -hmm. when facing an enemy in combat. Right. Don't treat them as, like, the uh, advertised enemy. Treat them as people in front of you making choices. Yeah. Honestly, I love that entire conversation, starting off with saying, yeah, if you if you are angering someone and you're in a fight with their back against the wall, they will show you who they truly are. That, not that I advocate starting fights, but there is some truth to that. Just generally speaking, when people are not under stress, the principles they adhere to and their moral code may not be the same moral code that they adhere to when they're under extreme stress. Mm-hmm. If they feel that the, their lives, or at least their way of life, is being threatened, their safety and stability, that's when the moral code really counts. So I think um, that's a more general takeaway from that advice. Londo get, got very mad at Jakar very early in the story for not knowing about the attack. And at the time I was thinking, okay, to be fair, the ambassador on the station does not necessarily have to know everything about what his government is choosing all along the way. But as it turns out, Jar did know <laughs> and was just being a slimy, you know, person the entire time. Um, but the Londo Jakar animosity here was delightful to behold. And adding that element that Londo has dreamed or I forget exactly what context he said he had the concept give birth, but the idea that he's going to be killing Jakar in 20 years. Yes, he says he has had that prescient dreams are a part of the Centauri species. It's something that they can do okay, and see how they will die. And that was his dream, is that the moment of his death will be 20 years from now, where he and Jakar have their hands at each other's throats. I kept feeling things for Londo, which again... To continue on last week's discussion, I wasn't really expecting, and we were talking earlier about how foreshadowing needs to have a place in the moment. This is within the episode foreshadowing, but the conversation about his nephew, Karn, early on, just really, really felt for Londo there. And of course, that was some clever writing because it was setting things up for Jakar's exploitation of Karn later in the episode, or... Maybe not Jakar's directly, but, you know, the Narn forces exploitation of Karn later in the episode. That was 
that was well done. Yeah, we don't know how much of a decision-making role Jakar had with this, but we do know that he supports the actions that are taking place. Mm-hmm. Was the bridge set new, or were they just focusing on different camera angles? It was mostly different angles. I think that they might have had to reconstruct it. They did actually buy out an old factory, so these were not standing sets, which um, JMS considers a, a bit of a blessing, because if you're on the Warner Brothers Studios lot, every time uh, the studio heads have like 15 minutes of unscheduled time, they feel obligated to just randomly show up and give feedback to whatever they see with or without context. So the fact that it was a 45-minute drive to get to them <laughs> gave them a certain level of insulation. <laughs> I like that. That's fun. Yeah, they were in the middle of nowhere, which is major because there's an episode coming up in the not-too-distant future where a couple dozen execs showed up to watch them film a particular scene. It's an interesting setup. A lot of times when you have your commander on a platform and everyone else working in a pit around them, that is done often in the context of imperialistic commands or authoritarian setups. You know, because when you're down on those consoles, the person who's commanding you, their face is a good, you know, 12 feet above you. And that can lead to a certain, you know, certain command attitudes, which don't seem to be the case here. But it's it's interesting, interesting setup. It does certainly save space. And it, like you said, it may be because of that, you know, factory setup, you know, whatever it was that they had for existing infrastructure to build around. But it does let us focus on whatever key players are on the upper platforms dealing with the story of the plot while extras are down below making it look like a station. Mm-hmm. So Londo builds a gun out of basically his toothbrush and some shoelace casings. He just like pulls stuff from random places and builds a gun. I was wondering, you know, Blaine, do you have gun parts scattered in your teapots and other knickknacks in your, in your house? Is this something that you have? Nothing that was designed to be put together that way, but I do have two physics degrees. So if push comes to shove. <laughs> push comes to shove comes to boom. <laughs> the only other thing I had is that I really, really liked whenever Sinclair and Jakar were sort of facing off in the denouement of the episode. Just the amount of loathing that Sinclair squeezes into the word ambassador, which should be a title of respect, but he's like... Ehm. Ambassador. It's just, it's great. I love the way he talks to Jakar. Yeah, they had a couple moments, both of the confrontation at the end and in the moment when they're in the garden, when Sinclair just turns to him, he's like, Yeah, don't do this. You didn't even pick a military target. You picked unarmed civilians. How brave does the or does the Narn Empire need to be to go attacking unarmed civilians? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See you inside, Ambassador. There's a little bit of that, but it's not like, yeah, you're right at the end of the your choice, Ambassador is just Oh, and one other thing I forgot to write down that I thought about while I was doing my rewatch this morning before we recorded was, you know, they talk about the Centauri versus the Narn and how one of their sources of conflict is overlapping land claims and how they can go back and forth in a cycle of violence. And I don't know if it was intentionally meant to come off this way, but it it felt like an allusion to the Middle Eastern conflict. And how a lot of that is, obviously, it's very complex. and I'm not trying to boil it down to anything, but I know that at least part of it is rooted in Israeli people saying, we live here 
and uh, Muslim people saying we live here and basically who lived here longer and who lived here first. And the fact that land has gone back and forth between the two or multiple warring sides over the course of centuries is makes everything huge, difficult and complex. So here you have Ragesh three is now a Centauri station, but they took it from the Narn back in the war but that was over 100 years ago. So you have families and multiple generations who now live here. So if you take it, you know, how far back do you want your claims to go on things before you're going to just start killing civilians because they're in your way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, I don't know if Szyzynski was thinking of that particular conflict, but that kind of conflict is not uncommon. Yeah, it's, it's in other places, too. The, the Middle East over the Holy Land. The stuff that's happening right now in Eastern Europe, as we record, between Russia and the Ukraine, although Putin insists that it's just denazification of the Ukraine, or sorry, of Ukraine, not to the Ukraine, putting that label on it is apparently Russian propaganda as well. We don't use the definite article. Uh, at least that's how my Ukrainian friends have explained it to me. Okay. But yeah, a lot of that's the support he is getting from within the Russian people. A lot of that that I'm hearing from people interviewed, maybe it's who the Western world is choosing to interview, but they are saying, no, that land is ours, and they are trying to rebuild the USSR effectively. They're just trying to do it under the name of Russia rather than the USSR. And still, they support bringing all those territories in. Putin has even said, yeah, he's only interested in bringing back the territories that used to belong to them, which is funny when I've got American friends saying, so why are we supporting Ukraine? It's not a risk to us. And I'm like, um, what, what, what about when he comes for Alaska? Mm-hmm. So just hopefully by the time people hear this, this has all been resolved happily. I don't know how that's possible, but let's hope that that's what happens by the time people hear this. All right. Well, I think that does uh, bring us to the end of our general discussion of the episode. So I don't have the outline in front of us. Which segment shall we hit first? We do giving form to the dream. According to their outline, first we have the Zakalo. And I, I, which is, I don't think we did this last time, it, it, or at least we didn't name it that. So what's, what are we going to do with the Zakalo? Uh, that's where we drop in a trailer for another podcast that we would recommend our listeners check out. All right, so to kick off our first Zakalo, as a thank you to Paul Spataro again for last week, you can check out this trailer for Is It Jaws? In 1975... Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. 
Jaws 2. An enjoyable film with some flaws, but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3. A moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4. A bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? And we're back. So our next segment, we have titled The Last Best Hope. This is the point for a standout character or character moment. When I was watching this, rewatching it here, I really took a liking to... I took a liking to Veer's performance a lot. And I was trying to think of a moment that I could use to exemplify that. But then whenever I thought of really cool character moments, I thought of Sinclair telling Ivanova... Never mind, you didn't hear any of this. Go vote according to the last orders because I, I didn't get a chance to talk to you and I left. So I'm now torn between those two. Veer overall or that particular moment with them. How about you? What's the last best hope for you? Uh, for me, the strongest moment on first viewing and still very strong this one is that moment you alluded to when Sinclair is saying, yeah, you you take on the council. I'm going to the Star of, or I'm going out with the Star of Furies. And you know, Ivana was saying, Okay, any orders? Lots of them. Unfortunately, I couldn't get to you before we left, so the last you heard, this is the way Earth is voting. Yeah. And I particularly like Claudia Christian, the way she plays that. It's scripted where it's, you know, she's still new, but this is where she decides she really likes this commander and his style. And you see that, just that hint of a smile on her face that says, okay, I, I like this guy. We are going to be able to work together. Mm-hmm. So like I said, that that still remains strong, but the part that has resonated the most on the repeat viewing that is elevated is just that recap of president Santiago's platform because that, that mentality that brings it there is actually going to be such a large part in the next few years. Well, that's a segue. If I ever heard one, uh, yes to our next section, giving form to the dream. So the elements that we should keep in mind for the future. But just restricting the discussion to elements of this episode, not talking about why they're important or what's going to happen later. So first-time viewers should feel safe listening to this. I say that because there are a lot of Babylon 5 podcasts that will have, like, spoiler-free segments where they like, turn off the podcast now if it's your first-time viewer. Our intention here is that first-time viewers should be able to listen to this discussion because I am also... I have not seen a whole lot of the series. I don't want to know what's going to happen, but I would like to be able to remember the elements that are setting up what's going to happen. So that's what we're going to talk about here. What are some elements that are uh, we should uh, pay attention to or not forget? Correct. Yes. I'm, I'm very much in the spoiler-free attitude myself because just before we get into it, my own attitude for that, you will have two different viewing experiences. So if you compare it to a movie with a twist ending, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to name them now, I find when you're watching them, you should have three different experiences. So the first watch is the experience where you don't know about the twist, and it takes you off guard. The second watch is where you go back to see what hints you missed that were setting up that twist. And then the third watch is once you see the pieces and how they fit together, it's a, a different tone, but you can just sit back and enjoy it. Right. If a twist is done well, you get all three of those experiences. If it's not done well, it's because your second time through, you're not finding anything because they didn't set it up. Which is unfortunate. 
Right. And if you are spoiled on what the twist is, you miss that first experience and jump directly to the second. Mm -hmm. We don't want to do that to listeners. So we will point out what the hints are, but we will not tell you what the twists are. We'll tell you these are pieces of a puzzle, but we're not going to tell you what the big picture is or how they fit together. So in the interest of being spoiler free and helping people with that, we also advise that as you're viewing along, you do not check the cast list on the Internet Movie Database. Oh, like before you watch the episode, don't look at the cast list? Yeah, and just generally for the series, because even in the series listings, there there is a spoiler there just looking at the casting. So I'm a little bit amused because Blaine has mentioned this to me a couple of times. Evidently, there is an episode that either in the title or the cast list or some combination, there is some something that happens or some character that shows up that like, if you don't know this is going to happen, it's kind of a big deal. And so I fully agree with him, but I'm also a little bit amused because <laughs> Blaine is a little bit nervous about me, me finding something out that I shouldn't find out. <laughs> right. And I don't want the listeners to find it out either. Yeah. The closest parallel I can think of is that we find out that Superman is going to be on the show after we've already met Clark Kent. Right. If you don't know that connection. Yes. So there is something along those lines. But anyway, so the point, the elements we are going to stick pins in this time. The Centauri Republic was very different 100 years ago. That 100 year time frame is going to come up more than once. Okay. And they were more conquering and conquesty a hundred years ago, as opposed to now, where they're a bit more in recession. Correct. We also learn that the PsyCorp is an organization to train telepaths, make them register, and behave appropriately to protect people's privacy. So it is, telepaths are both trained and regulated. Some people are raised within the PsyCorp, and others are either drafted, imprisoned, or take meds. Okay, so important world building that's kind of set up in the background here, but they're going to use it more later. Correct. Yeah, we need to understand the functioning of the Psychor in the future. Ivanova's attitude towards the Psychor is relevant. Um, this is something that JMS posted after the gathering and before Midnight on the Firing Line, where he said that Takashima was involved in the assassination attempt, and she was the one covering tracks and providing access codes and that sort of thing, but whether or not she knew it of, their own, of her own free will. But there's another way to get to that in the future. I suspect the original plan would have been a telepath forcing her to do this against her free will, because that would have produced an animosity against telepaths in the executive officer. Okay. Which is now just baked into Ivanova's character. So a similar story element with the previous character. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So Ivanova's attitude towards telepaths will be relevant. Again, President Santiago's platform, we've covered. That is a big motivator. Another one is that Sinclair, given the opportunity, would take the fighter pilot job over the commander job in that moment of stress. Okay. So he, he does that here with an ethical background, but this is the first step in a pattern. Interesting. It's kind of Kirk-like, which in a character who's not very Kirk-like, that desire to be behind the pilot chair rather than, you know, commanding the station is similar to his desire to captain rather than be an admiral. Yeah. 
Exactly. So it wants to be involved directly and not running at a distance. So those are pieces that I think we should all keep in mind. Okay, good. So listeners, now you have some, um, some world elements to uh, make sure not to forget as we go forward. All right. And I believe those are our three segments. Do we have anything else for this episode? I think that about wraps it up. So should we tell people what to prepare for next week? Okay, great. All right. So next week, we will be looking at Soul Hunter. So this is season one, episode two. It was actually the second produced. And the brief summary here is a badly damaged ship is brought into the station and the strange alien inside is identified as a soul hunter, an immortal race who could sense death and supposedly steal someone's soul. So that is all established by the end of Act 1. And this originally aired on February 2nd, 1994. Which means we'll be releasing the episode on February 2nd, 2024. 30 years later. It's in the name, kids. Yes. Speaking of that name, we have email address. So we would love to hear feedback. One of the plans that we have for when the show is taking a break is not to have this podcast take a break. Including having episodes where we directly address listener feedback. So you can email us at babylon 5 later at gmail.com. And if you're wondering, wait, is the 5 a number or the word? Is the 30 a number or the word? Yes, we claimed all four variations. Right. So Babylon 5, 30 years later, whatever you want to use for numerals or words is fine. And send us your thoughts on the episode. Are you a first-time viewer? Are you a, a long-time rewatcher? Uh, your thoughts on our thoughts and all those things. And if you would keep the emails spoiler free, or if you want to share a thought with Blaine, flag that paragraph as a spoiler paragraph. So I won't read it. <laughs> yeah, I've, we haven't discussed this yet. Let's do the behind the curtain stuff in front of the curtain. I propose that I will read all the emails first and sort them. And I can make folders easily with my my app so that we know when things are safe to read and when they are not. All right. Sounds good. And we will assign who's reading what in the feedback. So if there are things with spoiler paragraphs, that's the email I will read and we will skip the spoiler paragraph until we've gone far enough that that paragraph is no longer a spoiler. All right. So sending those emails, we will be uh, not reading them as we go, but we will have feedback specials in the between season breaks. So send those in. And I guess until next time, right? I guess so. So, thank you for listening. And good eating to you.